pretty profound warnings about apostasy that was inevitable within the church. This was something that Paul says the Spirit expressly warned about. That in later times, that in the times that we live in now, the times between Christ's ascension into heaven and on the throne of God until His return and bringing His kingdom back on the earth, there would be people who fall away. So he he gives this warning and he charges Timothy to communicate this reality to the church to prepare them for this reality so that they're not taken by surprise. And we pick up from that point now in verse 6. And I want to read from verse 6 down to verse 10 this morning. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who Believe. Would you pray now with me? Father, we come before You this morning as Your servants and as servants who desire to be accounted as good servants. Father, You have given us warnings from Your Word about the realities of apostasy and and falling away that the church will have to face. You have warned us of false teaching and the damage that it can do within a local church. You have also given us great hope in the Gospel. Given us a hope and an assurance that those who have been purchased by the blood of Your Son will persevere unto the end because You have sealed them with Your Spirit. So Father, we have this great encouragement in the Gospel. Lord, I pray that this morning would be a morning of encouragement, that Your Word would remind us of the beauty of the Gospel and of Your glory And that our affections would be lifted up in such a way that our greatest desire would be to serve You no matter what the cost may be. Father, illuminate Your Word for us this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this life we live calls us to experience some incredibly hard things. 
burying a child, or a member of your family, or a friend, is a hard thing. You can have pain involved. Suffering from a debilitating disease like cancer, or Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, arthritis can be a very hard thing and a trial. Approaching the inevitability of death is a hard thing as it gets closer and closer. But all of these experiences are, by their very nature, unavoidable. We have little to no control over whether or not these things enter our lives. They happen, and then we have to live through them. Our spiritual and emotional lives are put through the fire, and we have to persevere. We use the support that God gives us, Himself, His Word, His Spirit, His church, the body of Christ, family, prayer. We use these tools to persevere through these experiences, but that we experience these things is completely out of our control. Now, I don't in any way intend to lessen the difficulty of these experiences. But I do think that there is something that is harder than all of these. It's doing good. It's doing what is right. It's harder because in doing good and in doing what is right, there's a choice involved. There's an option that you have. You might be wondering, well, how exactly is doing good hard? And isn't that something that is pleasing to everyone? Well, in some respects, in some respects, it's, it's not hard. A lot of things we would consider good and right now are considered good and right by everyone. And so to do them poses no difficulty. Right? Helping your neighbor, perhaps, with some need that they have is culturally acceptable. It's not going to pose you any difficulty. It's not going to be any challenge. Take another example. Something like slavery. To speak out against slavery in any form, chattel slavery, sex slavery, race-based slavery, especially in the West, is likely to gain you applause and approval from everyone. There's no real risk involved in this now, and you're doing good when you do that. But the reason it's acceptable to oppose slavery today is because we live on the heels of past generations of people who fought hard to oppose it and change the way that the society views it. But had you lived a couple of hundred years ago, opposing slavery would not have been easy, but very 
hard. Because it would have cost you something. William Wilberforce spent most of his life laboring to abolish the slave trade. And then after that, slavery altogether in England. And it cost him greatly. He faced the pressure of international politics opposing him because Britain believed that if they abolished slavery, then the Americans and French and Portuguese and the Brazilian nations would simply inherit the wealth and the power of the British economy and the British economy would collapse. So you've got this entire international impulse working against Wilberforce. All of the politicians and all of the people living in the society who profit from this very institution all against Him. He faced the national slander of His name by His adversaries launching accusations that were untrue towards Him. Accusations that He didn't care about His own people. The people who lived in England and grew up in England, he didn't care about his own people who suffered from something like low wages because all of his affections were directed at the Africans. That was the accusation. One adversary in particular, another politician, called him an unfeeling and cold-blooded hypocrite. And said, you seem to have a great affection for the fat and lazy and laughing and singing and dancing Negroes. But never have you done one single act in favor of the laborers of this country. Those kind of vile accusations were not uncommon. And they took his name through the mud year after year. He lost his daughter at the age of 22, to tuberculosis, five days after Christmas in 1821, 14 years after the slave trade had been abolished, but 14 years before all slave owning had been outlawed. He suffered from physical ailments, such as an eye disease that made him nearly blind, ulcers in his colon, and later a curvature in his spine. Some reported that his back was so curved and distorted that his chin literally rested on his chest. All of these things would make anyone question whether or not what they were doing was actually right. Whether or not it's good. You've got an entire nation, an entire culture working against you, and you're suffering from physical debilitations, it would make anyone question whether or not what they are actually doing is right. It would make them question, is the providence of God working against me? Therefore, should I reevaluate what I am working for? Should I, myself, really be doing this? Wouldn't it be better for someone else to take the reins. Especially since I've got all of these physical issues going on. When circumstances in your life seem to be working against you, when family and friends and 
culture seem to be working against you because you are laboring for what is good and right, it can really make you question what you are doing. And it becomes that much easier to back off and give up altogether. And so doing good becomes perhaps the hardest thing you could ever do. Timothy was probably in a situation very much like this. The Apostle Paul had charged him to stay in Ephesus to lead the Ephesian church. And part of that leadership involved the very difficult task of opposing some of the current leaders within the church. The leaders. Those who were respected within the church. There were some in the Ephesian church who were recognized teachers, but the problem was that they weren't teaching the Gospel. They were teaching a distortion of it. And people within the church were being persuaded. And Timothy was given the task by the Apostle Paul of charging these teachers not to teach any other doctrine. Not to teach any false doctrine. And making the task even harder was the fact that Timothy, at least in comparison to the members of the church, was rather young. Paul says to him in verse 12 of of this chapter, chapter 4, he says, let no one despise you for your youth. Here's this young man. He'd been to Ephesus before. He'd been a part of planting the church there, but had also traveled with Paul and had left the church and is now being sent back into the church And priority number one is to confront the leaders of the church. And he's young. He seems also to have had a somewhat timid, natural disposition about himself as well. Probably the kind of disposition that would prefer to avoid these kinds of confrontations. Because Paul encourages him in 2 Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And and then he says, For God gave us a spirit, Timothy, not of fear, not of timidity, Timothy, but of power and love and self-control. So here we have Timothy, a young man probably inclined to avoid confrontations, charged with the task of confronting some serious error within the church. He is charged with doing good for the church. But a good that very well may cost him. Cost him a lot. So Paul writes to him in these verses, verses 6 to 10, to encourage him and to assure him that the work he is called to do in the eyes of God and despite whatever accusations may come is good. It's good work. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ. Jesus. 
Some of you may need to hear that kind of word of encouragement this morning. I know some of you have friends and family who you pray for and you share the gospel with on a regular basis. And every time you do, you face the accusations of being overbearing or pushy or bigoted or closed-minded or self-righteous. Or if those accusations aren't there, it's just the fact that you're treated now as an alien. No longer necessarily a vibrant member of the family. Some of you have been involved with church ministries over the past couple years, over even more years, and you get discouraged because you see and you have seen very little fruit. Very little results. The results that you would like to see. You've seen very little fruit. Well, notice that Paul doesn't say that Timothy will be a good servant if his instruction is well received and the church is completely reformed. He says simply, if you put these things before the brothers, if you are faithful in your work, if you Honor God in your work. You will be a good servant in the eyes of God. So by the way of encouragement this morning, I want us to see what a good servant is in the eyes of God. Sometimes like Timothy, we need to be reminded that God's approval is a little different than the approval of man. And according to God, in this passage, there are at least three characteristics we can see of a good servant. And all of them have to do with faithfulness. Simple faithfulness. Number one, a good servant is nourished and shaped by the Word. A good servant is nourished and shaped by the Word. Number two, a good servant trains for godliness. Trains for godliness, and then finally, a good servant hopes in the living God. Hopes in the living God. So first, a good servant is nourished and shaped by the Word. Look again with me at verse 6. The Apostle Paul says, if you put these things before the brothers, if you set these truths before the brothers, the, the sobering reality of apostasy as well as the great hope of the mystery of godliness, the Gospel itself, the reality of Christ entering into this world to save the nations. If you put all of these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. The words being trained refer to a holistic kind of nourishment. The result of of being fed with a healthy diet of sorts. But there's not only this nourishing with food idea here, but an idea of being shaped and trained. So there's another very similar word that is also found in the New Testament. And sometimes it refers to God feeding His creatures. Matthew 6.26, for example, it says, 
Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. That's the similar word there. He feeds the birds. And sometimes the word refers to the raising of a child, child rearing, cha- training a child, disciplining a child. So, for example, in Luke 4, verse 16, where Luke writes, and Jesus then came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, where he had been raised. Same word there. You've got this feeding and this nourishing idea, as well as this training, this child rearing idea where someone is being shaped and molded simultaneously as they are being fed. Paul says that for a good servant of Christ, what shapes and nourishes them is the words of the faith and good doctrine. That's what shapes you and feeds you. It is the holistic apostolic gospel. It is the gospel of the kingdom of God preached by Christ and passed down through the apostles. This is a gospel, my friends, that we can never get enough of. We can never grow tired of hearing. From the moment we first heard the good news that there is a God who is infinitely holy, pure, powerful, and wise that has orchestrated a plan to rescue sinners from the just penalty of sin by giving them His own Son as a substitute to the very present moment and the moments beyond. For a Christian, this Word is like fresh, cold water to a parched soul. It is sweet every time we hear it. It is satisfying. The more we hear it and the more we plumb its unsearchable depths, the stronger we become. Our armor gets thicker. Our weapons are sharpened. And we are ready for whatever work God may call us to do. As we take in more of the Gospel as well, it begins to shape us and mold us. It molds us ultimately into the image of Christ. It transforms the way that we think and the way that we interact with others. And it even changes our priorities. What we find to be the greatest pursuit. For Timothy, this this Gospel nourishing was to manifest itself in a very particular way. His love for the Gospel and His love for the body of Christ was to drive His action in correcting the false Gospels in the church and warning the Ephesians about the reality of apostasy. You see, here was the problem. The Gospel was given by God as spiritual power for His people. Power. It first has the power to create them. To bring them into existence. It is only through the Word of the Gospel that God takes dead sinners and creates new life in them. That is what we were and are apart from hearing the words of the Gospel. Dead. 
We have a cemetery right outside with corpses. No matter how many times you call them to get up and rise and to go to work, they will never do it. That's how dead sinners are when it comes to righteousness and God. And when the gospel comes, God uses the gospel to create new life. It has the power to resurrect dead sinners and to create them brand new and to give them hearts that are brand new. Hearts that have new desires and affections for God. The Gospel is the means by which He executes His resurrecting work. There is no salvation for anyone apart from hearing the Gospel, because without hearing the Gospel, everyone is dead. You see. When people ask the question, what of the people who live in tribes who have never heard the Gospel, what happens to them? Well, the reality is they're dead. They need life. That is the purpose of missions. It is a necessity that they be born again and be created new, and therefore it is a necessity that the Gospel gift to them. The Gospel is the means that God has ordained to create new life within people. And the Gospel and the Gospel alone has the power to give life, and thus there is nothing more powerful on the earth. A nuclear warhead has the power of a box of snappers by comparison. Because the only thing a nuke can do is kill. The gospel makes alive. But the gospel second has the power to nourish and strengthen God's people once they have been created to increase their joy in Him, to cause them to persevere unto the end. And so the problem is that if there is a false gospel being preached and being taught within a church, there is a powerless gospel being preached. And the people of God will be lacking in power. The people of God will also thereby be robbed of God's greatest gift them. And so you see, Paul is saying to Timothy that if you have yourself, Timothy, been nourished by good doctrine and the Gospel, as you have, if you have understood its importance and its power, as you do, if you have understood how valuable and necessary it is for the people of God, as you also do, then your priorities will not be determined by how many people like you, Timothy, or your reputation before others. Your priorities will be determined by the centrality of the Gospel. And no matter how painful or hard it may be, B, you will do what is necessary to minister to the souls of the Ephesians by putting the truths of the Gospel before them and warning them of apostasy. By your faithfulness in these things, Paul says, you will be a good servant of the King. 
Sometimes serving Christ can put us in conflicts we'd rather not be in. I don't think William Wilberforce had a burning desire to have his entire nation against him. But God honors faithfulness. God approves of faithful servants. And His Word will ultimately replenish our spirits when our flesh begins to fail because of the culture and the voices and the temptations of sin within leading us away from faithfulness. Now, a good servant is not only nourished and then shaped by the Word, but second, he trains for godliness. Trains for godliness. Read with me again from verse 7. Paul says, "...have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths." Rather, train yourself for godliness. Well, what does that mean? What does train yourself for godliness mean? The the word training there is actually where we get the word gymnasium from. It has to do with exercise and a a discipline, most often related to a a bodily discipline where you're, you're trying to meet a certain goal, right? You go to the gym. Use the gymnasium. You exercise. You train. But the question is, what does this training look like when it comes to godliness? So if you were to, for example, join a gym, and you had never exercised before, you had never trained before, and you hire a personal trainer, and that trainer comes to you and says, go and train yourself for physical weight training, for losing weight for increasing your muscular capabilities. And he were to just point you to the weight room, you'd probably be at a loss. I don't know if you've seen, but most of those machines look like things straight out of a spaceship. You have cables, and you have weights, and you have seats, and sometimes you use your arm for one handle, and sometimes you use your foot for another, and if there is no one explaining to you how you train yourself, you will look like an imbecile within the gym. In fact, you may indeed make it on YouTube as a star, as those who have been in the gym and failed miserably while being there. You need instruction. You need someone to show you how to train for Godliness. So what does it mean then, and what does it look like to train yourself for godliness? Well, first we need to understand and know what godliness is. What is the goal we are aiming at? Godliness is a respectful devotion to someone. An honoring kind of devotion. A desire, at least, to honor someone who is worthy of honor. And in many cases, when we find this word godliness in the Scriptures, the the person that we honor is God Himself. That is what our devotion is directed towards. But it can also be directed towards people. So consider, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, just a few verses down in verses 3 and 4. In this chapter, Paul is talking about honoring widows. 
Widows who are truly widows. Widows who are left all alone. They have no family to take care of them. They have no means of supporting themselves. And Paul charges the church, he says, it is your responsibility, church, that if there are widows who have no capabilities of sustaining themselves, this falls upon you. But there is an exception. There may be widows who have other means by which they are taken care of. And in particular, in chapter 5, Paul directs his finger at the widow's family. The family. He says in verse 3, he says, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. So godliness here, showing godliness to the widows, a family member showing godliness to the widows is is very simply devoting yourself to honoring her by taking care of her. In the very same way that she as your mother or your grandmother raised you, now you return. And this is not out of a sense of any duty where your heart is not in it. It's your mother and your grandmother. You love them and you desire to take care of them and to show honor to them and to show your devotion to them. That's what godliness at its root means. It's a devotion to someone. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, that godliness and devotion is directed towards God. So how do we train ourselves for godliness? A life that is all about devoting ourselves to giving glory to God. Well, I think 2 Peter, the text that we read earlier, 2 Peter helps us the most here. In 2 Peter, there are two principles that we can learn for training in godliness. It comes in the first chapter in verses 3 and 4. And the first principle is that we train for godliness by growing in our knowledge of Christ. We train for godliness by growing in our knowledge of Christ. So listen to what 2 Peter says. Chapter 1, verse 3. He says, His divine power, that is God, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So God's divine power gives us everything we need for godliness. That's incredible, right? God is actively working with His power. The the same power He uses to create the world and to resurrect dead sinners to new life. This same power is continually communicated to His people and grants them everything they need for life and for godliness. But He says that this power comes through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. That is Christ. His power comes through the knowledge of Christ. An increasing growth in the knowledge of Christ. And this knowledge isn't just some head knowledge. It's not just some 
intellectual knowledge. The intellectual knowledge that just remains in the head is the very kind of knowledge that the false teachers were after. And Paul says, Timothy, you need to reject irreverent and silly myths. The false teachers only desired this certain head knowledge. This understanding of the genealogies of the Old Testament, for example, and speculations on who Enoch was and what his life was like when the only thing we were told about Enoch in the Old Testament was that there was a time when he was not. They desired pure head knowledge. Well, this is not the kind of knowledge of Christ we are to seek and to grow in. The knowledge of Christ here is a personal, relational kind of knowledge. It's communion with Him through His Word and Spirit and prayer. It's the very defining benefit of the New Covenant. So, you see, in the New Covenant, God made a drastic change. In the Old Covenant, had you lived as an Israelite under the Old Covenant, there was no guarantee that you actually knew God. Many people living under the Old Covenant were wicked idolaters who despised and rejected God. And God says that through the prophet Jeremiah that when He brings in the New Covenant, what will be one of the defining marks of this covenant is that everyone, in it will know me. It says in Jeremiah 31 that no longer shall each person teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. That is a personal, relational knowledge. The kind of knowledge that you have of your closest family and your closest friends. It's a knowledge that has with it a, a love and a deep desire for another. Paul says, or Peter says in 2 Peter, that knowing Christ in this way, personally, by faith, gives us divine power for living lives devoted to the glory of God. The second way we train for godliness is by trusting in God's promises. Trusting in God's promises. So again in 2 Peter 1, beginning in Verse 3 again, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. What's the purpose? So that through them, through the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Meaning you might be conformed into the image of Christ. You may become more like God in that very unique respect. And having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It's the promises that are essential there. Paul himself says in our text, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The promises of God are given to us to increase our affections for God. 
It's God's way of saying, these are the things I'm giving you. You deserved nothing. You deserved only judgment and wrath. You have rejected me from birth, from your very beginnings. And despite all of this, by my own grace and mercy, I am giving you an inheritance. I am making you co-heirs of the kingdom of God. I am giving you a promise of new life so that the grave will no longer be your greatest fear. It will be your greatest victory. And He gives us a great promise as well that He gives us in the Gospel Himself. There is no jewel, there is no monetary thing on this world that has any more value than the infinite God and Creator of all of these things. And God, through the Gospel and His Son, gives us Himself. That is the greatest treasure one could ever possess. And it is a promise to us in the Gospel. And these promises are intended, are used for the purpose of creating within us greater affections for God. Greater desires for Him as we grow in a deeper understanding of the gifts that He has given us. As our affections for God increase, so also does our godliness. Because our devotion to Him will be something far easier the more we love Him. So a good servant is nourished by the Word and he trains in godliness. But third and finally, he hopes in the living God. A good servant hopes in the living God. Read again verse 10. Where Paul says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God. We have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Fundamental to every Christian is our hope in a God who is not dead. A God who is not mute and deaf like the idols. A God who is living. A God who hears. And a God who sees. And a God who communes with His people. As the living God, He is not impersonal, but personal. He fellowships with His people. He speaks to us through His Word. His Word is living and active. It corrects us with fatherly correction when we sin against Him. And it encourages us when we are going through afflictions and trials and suffering when we need those encouragements. It is a personal Word that speaks not only to our ears, but to the deepest parts of us, to the, to the heart and to the soul. As the living God, He actively works to save people. Paul calls Him the Savior of all people. Saving is not some inactive work. It is something that is very active. If you have believed in Christ, the only reason you believed is because in that moment when you were created new and your heart was transformed, God had determined to do a specific work in you. 
And that moment when you had been serving the devil and the kingdom of darkness and the desires of sin, God looked at you and said, you will be mine and I will be yours. You will be my people and I will be your God. And He rescued you and saved you actively. He did something for you. He is living. And most importantly, as the living God, He is life-giving. He is a resurrecting God. That is the essential hope of the Gospel. When the good news is preached, it is not only about salvation from sins. It is not only about cleansing of all unrighteousness. It is ultimately about the hope of a resurrection. That is our greatest hope. The Apostle Paul writes of this hope in Romans 8, verses 22 and 24, and he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. And how is this adoption defined? He defines it as the redemption of our bodies, our flesh and blood rescued from the corruption of sin and the finality of the grave. The Gospel gives us the hope that the grave is not final. And Paul says, for in this hope we were saved. It is in the hope of the resurrection that we are saved. This past week, maybe a week before, I read this article, come across this article about Larry King. Larry King, an agnostic or an atheist, one of the two, I think he goes back and forth between them. But he said that when he dies, his desire is that his body will be frozen. With the hope that one day, as technology increases and gets better, someone will discover a way to bring him back from the dead. To fall his body out. And it was striking, he said, that's my only hope. Death, even to the most secure atheist or agnostic, is a hopeless prospect. And what a hope that we have in the Gospel. That we do not have to desire someone to freeze our bodies. Because we believe in a God who has already demonstrated the capability of resurrecting the dead. There will be no thawing. There will only be a Word that goes forth. Rise from the dead. And the dead in Christ will rise to new life. And He will say, now enter into your inheritance of the kingdom of God. That, my friends, is the hope of the Gospel. And if that is not your hope this morning, trust and be assured. Understand that this hope goes out to everyone. Paul says that He is the Savior of 
all people, all nations, from every tribe and tongue, most especially, or another way to say it, in particular, those who believe. The gospel is for you if you can trust in Christ. And He has given us every means and every possibility and every reason why we should trust Him. Because He has demonstrated His very own power over the grave and gives you the promise that believing in Him and devoting yourself to Him will result in this kind of inheritance. That is our hope, my friends. And as that hope increases within us and as that hope works within our hearts, our affections grow more and more and a love for God and godliness and devotion to Him increases. And the day will come when we are all raised from the dead. And the Lord Jesus will say, you have been a good servant. May that word encourage you this morning. May that word encourage you as you go out this week. When you minister, when you relate to others in your community, and you seek to communicate to them this very real you pray with me? Father, we come before You and we praise You, Lord, because You are indeed a living God. And You speak to our souls and You comfort and You give us eternal Water, and you say to us that you can drink from this fountain forever, and you have given us a promise that a day will come when the tree of life that we have been banished from will be given to all. You will say to us, Take and eat, and we will live in your presence forever. Father, help us to never forget this glorious truth of the gospel. And help us, Lord, to grow in our deeper knowledge and understanding of it so that our loves and affections will be rightly ordered towards You. We desire, Lord, to honor You in everything. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong